The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. In my research for this episode, I read Clementine's 2016 book, Fight Like a Girl. I'm ashamed to say that I hadn't read it before. Why? Because I guess I thought that I knew stuff. I knew what feminism was, why it was important, and why we need feminists to keep talking about and challenging the patriarchy. As the parent of a 10-year-old boy and an 8-year-old girl, I thought I knew enough about feminism to raise good people, to have conversations with my son about his inherent privilege simply from his whiteness, his blue eyes, his blonde hair, his maleness. I thought I knew enough to raise an empowered girl who not only knew her rights but understood that the patriarchy existed. I thought I was a pretty good feminist with a pretty good grasp of feminism. And then I read Fight Like a Girl. And I realized that no, I did not know enough or do enough, that I hadn't spent enough time examining feminism and my own experiences of being a girl in the world. Early in the introduction of the 2018 version of Fight Like a Girl, Clementine says, I'm a woman who lives in the world, which means it's been impossible for me to escape the impact of patriarchy. This resonated for me as a privileged, white, middle-class woman. It also began an unfurling recognition of all the ways that patriarchy and misogyny have informed and shaped the course of my own life. Even more sobering, though, was the rising feeling of rage that my own child, my own daughter, will have to navigate the world as a female, and that simply because she is a female, she will be subjected to the inherent risk of being a female, and that she will experience many of the microaggressions that I did and that I've normalized as part of the experience of being a woman. This realization is confronting. It's also conversely confronting to think about being the parent of a son who will benefit from all the things that arise from the patriarchy and that despite my best efforts, receives daily conscious and unconscious messaging that asserts his power and dominance as a male. This podcast explores the concept of doing good. Feminism is a polarizing topic and in itself, it incites rage for some people, mostly men, but a good bunch of women too. Some will argue that a discussion on feminism has no place in a discourse about doing good because they'll feel that outspoken feminists give feminism a bad name, that feminism isn't necessary because gender equality is happening, apparently, And they'll feel many other things. Some will argue that being a feminist or promoting feminist perspectives has nothing to do with doing good and is in fact a bad thing. 
But the fact is that feminism has had and continues to have a positive impact on women. Speaking up loudly about the systemic patriarchy that forms the very fabric of our society, our institutions, our workplaces, our legislative structures, our relationships and our self-image does help women to view their lives differently, to understand their experiences through a different lens and to motivate them to ensure that their daughters and their granddaughters don't experience the world in the way that they have. This episode explores the duality of doing good as an outspoken feminist thinker and writer. It looks at the potential harms of feminism, including harm to the feminist herself. It asks questions about feminism as a Western construct and explores the role of colonialism within feminism. I've been doing a lot of thinking about systemic power structures like colonialism and how they infiltrate the practice of doing good, and I wanted to explore this with Clementine. For listeners that haven't come across Clementine's work before, Clementine Ford is an online sensation, a fearless feminist heroine and a scourge of trolls and misogynists everywhere. She's a beacon of hope and inspiration to thousands of Australian women and girls. Her book, Fight Like a Girl, is an essential manifesto for feminists, new, old and soon to be, and exposes just how unequal the world continues to be for women. Crucially, it's a call to arms for all women to rediscover the fury that has been suppressed by a society that still considers feminism a threat. Clementine's also the author of a book called Boys Will Be Boys, which challenges toxic masculinity and asks, how does a feminist raise a son in a world that conditions boys into entitlement, privilege and power? at the expense not just of girls' humanity, but also their own. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Clem. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Lee. No worries. So first of all, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? So when I think about doing good now, the easiest way for me to think about it is in terms of what I want to teach my son about being a good person. But even the sort of word good is, I don't know if misleading is the right word, but we often think in terms of that binary good versus bad. And I sometimes wonder how helpful that is because as I'm sure you've discussed with numerous other guests, like who gets to define what being good means? Who gets to define good work? People are a lot more complicated than just good versus bad. So when I'm talking about patriarchy, for example, when I'm talking about unlearning sexism or, you know, the sort of idea of the good man, you know, when people say to me, like, well, most men are good men and they would never do anything to hurt a woman, blah, blah, blah. My response is often, actually, most men are just neutral because most people are just neutral and we can't actually really lay claim to being good people because firstly, we don't get to define what goodness is, but also surely we're just working towards goodness. I see being good and doing good as an unattainable unattainable is wrong, but as a goal that we're constantly moving towards on the horizon. And who's to say if we'll ever reach it? Who's to say if we'll ever be the pinnacle of goodness? Probably not. But the process towards goodness is what counts rather than goodness in and of itself, because that's kind of a flawed concept, I think. Would you view your work as a feminist as a practice of doing good in the world? I would, but I don't know if lots of other people, including other feminists, would. I mean, again, what I define as moving towards goodness or what I define as trying to be good is 
probably to a lot of people as either not being good enough or as being good in the wrong way or all I know is that to me feminism is extremely important obviously it's like a core part of who I am and it's a core part of my politics it is the core part of my politics and doing good or trying to do good is is something that I care deeply about and so of course there's two things in my own philosophy go hand in hand but again like I said whether or not I've always done good things or made good choices within that space is at the very least up for debate and also you'd be able to find numerous people who would tell you otherwise yeah do you see the idea of doing good as something that we should practice and kind of integrate through all aspects of our daily life or is it something that's a bit siloed and and we go over here and we do good and then we come back to live life I mean, I guess it depends because at at a basic level, striving towards goodness is something that I think we should all want to have in our life. I think those two things can exist at the same time, you know, like wanting to do good, wanting to leave a good footprint in the world and wanting, you know, as as Leila Syed says, wanting to be a good ancestor, I think are all really essential kind of traits and and essential goals for who, who we should want to be as humans. But at the same time, as individual acts of trying to be good, can we sustain that level of intensity at all times? And and who gets to define what that is? I mean, obviously, like, just let's just use a very basic example of like, it, it doesn't take a lot for me to try not to kill someone every day. So that's a goodness that I can kind of like quite comfortably work towards every day. But as a feminist, is it a deliberate act of not working towards goodness that I enjoy watching reality TV shows like The Bachelor? <laughs> I think I could comfortably make the argument, well, look, it's okay for me to sit down and enjoy The Bachelor for an hour a week, or it's okay for me to enjoy participating in capitalist patriarchy by putting my makeup on. Like, that's fine. But the wider implications of what participating in these systems, you know, are, of course, part of the bigger picture. So if we fixate too much on wanting to sort of be, you know, the best example of goodness that we can be at all times, then we're going to struggle really to make it through the world as it is because the world as it is, is essentially not good. And part of that journey towards goodness is in trying to dismantle some of these systems of oppression or all of these systems of oppression. But as we do that, we still move through them. We still have to participate them in some way in order to survive in the system. Yeah, absolutely. And we would tie ourselves in knots trying to not participate and to do good all the time. Exactly. I'm interested in the ways that doing good can harm others. Do you think that feminism can or does harm others? Absolutely. But that's less to do with the sort of basic kind of philosophical principle or political principle of feminism and more to do with how feminists, including myself, have prosecuted those principles. Feminism, as it has been largely practiced by white middle-class women, has done incredible harm to women of colour, to, you know, poor women, to marginalised women. Everyone, whether or not they're feminists or not, has a huge problem with ignoring disabled people. So, and ignoring the fact that we still live in an incredibly ableist society and feminism is no different to that. So I think that we can perpetuate harm and we can we can perpetuate harm through inaction and through prioritising ourselves first and foremost when that's not what we should be doing. And we can also actively perpetuate harm or actively commit harm through ignorance or through willful, deliberate behaviour. 
And certainly it's not even just that other people would say that I've perpetrated harm over the years. I know that I have. Hopefully I haven't done it, you know, in deliberate ways, but probably all human has been deliberately hurtful at some point. So, yeah, I think that being mindful of the ways in which political movements that seek to liberate groups have also ignored groups is essential practice. You wrote in Fight Like a Girl that we'll never give up fighting for all women to be treated with dignity and liberated from patriarchal oppression, even the ones who don't believe it exists. On this podcast, we often explore themes of colonialism, white privilege, and the imposition of those systems on the practice of doing good, particularly in discussions around international aid and development. It got me thinking, is is feminism a Western construct? And is Western feminism, when applied to the global South, those, those countries that often we're, you know, working in, is that colonialism? Well, just to the first part of uh, your question there, just to clarify for your listeners that when I wrote that in the book, I was referring to generally white women in the West who uh, are against feminism, who believe that patriarchy doesn't exist, you know, and who are in service to patriarchy because it gives them limited reward to be that way. So I wasn't referring to women in the global South or anything, but I do, I do take the point of your question. I don't think that the principle of feminism the desire to be liberated from the systems that oppress you, uh, you know, in this case, obviously, if you're a woman, I don't think that that's a Western construct. It's certainly not an invention of the West. It's definitely not an invention of white women. You know, there are thriving feminist movements all over the world, um, not just in predominantly white Western countries. They may not, you know, use the same methods and they may not have the exact same language as in like the political language of it. But you know, this is why it's so frustrating when anti-feminist people in the West say, well, if you really cared about liberating women, then you'd go and help those women, quote unquote, over there. And over there is always where isn't here. Because if we if we say that women here need to be liberated, then men here need to, you know, accept that they're part of the systems that oppress them or oppress us. And my response is always, well, if you care about them so much, why don't you go and fund some of the feminist groups that are actively working in these regions? And of course, they don't, they A, don't know about any of the feminist groups, but also B, they don't care about them because that's not actually what their true goal is. So I don't think that feminism is a construct of the West, but I do think that feminists and, uh, you know, feminism as practiced by women in the West has definitely been colonialist. And I mean, as all white supremacist systems are, there is the sort of the white saviour kind of trope that, you know, we need to address and unpack in ourselves. But also I think what's often forgotten in feminist circles and, you know, again, I'm guilty of doing this too because we sort of do tend to, I mean, it's, it's normal that we focus on our immediate environment. But, you know, when we talk about liberating women from patriarchy, you know, how often does that include the really poor and exploited women in the world who, you know, make the clothes that we wear, but who also like, we can't just say, well, let's stop buying those clothes because that's not actually unpacking the system that they operate in. You know, that's, that's just leaving them out of work. Yeah. Potentially causing more harm and and more oppression and them to engage in jobs that might be less safe. Yeah, I mean, and there's a variety of different kinds of that. But, I mean, that's why that's why it's important to then think about, you know, to sort of like decenter ourselves or continue to try to decenter ourselves and instead think, well, how can we solve this problem for them? In that example, for uh, you know, for example, 
recognise that there are a lot of really smart women who live in these worlds and who live in this in you know live under these systems of oppression who have already addressed how those systems need to be reimagined and it's about listening to them and working with them and you know as everything comes down to money funding it and i think you know across all forms of development or helping work it's the same problem it's the Western voices and the white voices that are amplified and the stories that are amplified and, you know, there's not enough money, as you say, flowing to organisations that can amplify those voices of people that are, as you say, have unpacked these systems themselves and worked out how to challenge them. You wrote that feminism has intersectionality with racism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia and classism. Can you talk a little bit more about the intersectionality with the kind of white privilege and and colonialist viewpoint? It's something that's coming up a lot in lots of different podcasts um, and in my research as well is how do we look more closely at the systems that we are trying to challenge and deconstruct and how they intersect with other things? Well, I can talk about my own experience of you know, or my own kind of process through that. But I don't think that I can adequately talk to those intersections because obviously I don't experience most of them. I would feel pretty uncomfortable explaining racism. I know that's not exactly what you're asking me to do. No. (laughs) I mean, for me, as I said, you know, as I will go on to say numerous times, I'm certainly not a perfect feminist. I don't position myself as a perfect feminist. I have said a couple of times recently, I don't even call myself intersectional, not because I don't believe in the principles of intersectionality. But again, it's for me, it's a little bit like that declaration of being a good person. You know, people say I'm a good person. Do you really get to decide that? I don't think that as a white woman and as a white woman who experiences a lot of privileges because of my own kind of intersection of privileges, but also because of the position that I occupy, I have even more of an amplified privilege, I suppose, in terms of platform and stuff. I don't know that I have the right to stand there and say I'm an intersectional feminist because it's it's not about saying it, it's about showing it. And that's, I think, the same with goodness. You know, it's not about saying that you're a good man, it's about showing that you're a good man. It's not about saying that you're an anti-racist, it's about showing that you are practising anti-racism every day. And I feel a little uncomfortable sometimes when I see particularly other white privileged women like myself. I think that there's a space in which you can reflect those, again, not claiming to do that perfectly, but there's a space in which you can reflect that striving towards that and reflect how you try to practice those principles and reflect those principles uh, without sort of wading too closely to the why say it, therefore I am. Because sometimes I think that, and again, particularly in regards to white women, we're so conscious of the Karen trope now and not being Karen, which is great. We should be conscious of not being Karen. But I wonder how much projection is happening where I see a lot of white women elsewhere kind of like crawling over each other to make sure that they're the first one to declare that another woman is a Karen. And I want to be careful with how I frame this because I'm not saying that you know, these people shouldn't be called out. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take a stand publicly publicly against behaviour that is racist or sexist or ableist or whatever it might be. But the eagerness to 
label someone else as something in order to define yourself as not that thing is not the same as not being that thing. You know, I was thinking about the Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper scenario in which Amy Cooper, you know, the white woman called police in New York in Central Park, called police on Christian Cooper, who was a black bird watcher, essentially because he reminded her very politely, in fact, not, not that this, not that that politeness is even necessary to the conversation because it shouldn't have any bearing on, uh, you know, her not calling in police to threaten his life. But essentially she was, she was in a situation. So this is what bothered me about how I saw some white women respond to that was this sort of like incredulous, how could she do that? I would never do that sort of rush to kind of like define again, define it as not being the thing. And I think that that's kind of dangerous because one of the things that I'm learning as I sort of engage more with anti-racist education and read more people who write about that and who lived that experience is that, you know, white supremacy furnishes us with, it's like Peggy McIntosh's the invisible knapsack, you know, it, it furnishes us with these privileges And whether or not we want them or not, or whether or not we say we want them, we still have them. So as a white person and as a white woman in particular, the moment that we were born into a white supremacist world, we received that invisible knapsack. Within that knapsack is, in this specific circumstance, is the handbook and the toolkit for how you respond to a black man calling you out in public. And whether or not we think that we would do that or not, I think that it's really dangerous to not acknowledge that that toolkit has been given to us as, as white people living in a white supremacist society. So it's not enough to just say, oh, well, I would never do that. Because the frightening fact, what actually scares me is knowing how easily the system allows you to prop it up. You know, as white women, instead of going, well, I would never do that, I think it's it's a better act and it's a more honest act to understand and accept that any one of us could do that because that's what we've been taught to do. And and we, we must go forward in the world every day with that knowledge so that if we are called on to make a choice, we have that knowledge in our head and we make the right one. Yeah, and I think it, it makes me think we don't know what her other experiences in life have been for her to pull out those tools from that knapsack in that moment. Well, actually, I'm just going to interrupt you there and say that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what her other experiences are, does it? You know, and this is again, a privilege that white people like us have is that we, uh, I don't, I'm not saying this is necessarily what you were doing, but certainly people do do this where they seek to find the explanation. Well, why did she do that? Why, what's gone on in her life? What difficulties, et cetera, has this person faced? And the, the thing is, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter because at the point in which she was able to make that choice, she chose to fall back on a centuries old system that very easily could have resulted in police officers murdering that man. And like I said, I think that it's dangerous for us to not understand that we don't get to just say, I sit outside of the system because we're in the system and we've been taught how to use the system, even if we don't remember being taught how to use it. We have been taught. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we unpack that a lot with people who want to go overseas and volunteer and help, you know, help the less vulnerable, the white saviors and stuff. It's you, you often can challenge people and say, well, why are you doing this? And, and they don't really know. It's just something that's kind of been embedded in them through 
society and education and institutions, religious institutions. So they're, they're not consciously operating from that perspective. And it takes an excavation to actually go, oh, I am, you know, I am both participating in and perpetuating a system that doesn't align with my values that I would have thought that I had or the way that I want the world to see me. I want to flip the lens a little bit and talk about the harms of being an outspoken feminist author, commentator, and the harms that may have come to you. And I know that you you write about it in your book a lot and you have been and you are subjected to some of the most vile hatred imaginable on a daily basis. You you receive threats to your life. You receive disgusting commentary on your parenting, on your existence. And in the book, one of the lines that you wrote really got me said, you might expect that being sent something like this would deeply wound me or the very least hurt my feelings, but it just mostly amused me. And after a while, it all becomes white noise, angry white noise, sure, but white noise nonetheless. And it got me thinking and I understand that the comments and the accusations and the threats become meaningless over time, but it makes me wonder about the subconscious harm that might occur to you from living with that ever looming kind of threat of physical harm or sexual assault or to your life, particularly when you have a child. Cause I know for me, the fragility of my own existence became really confronting the moment I had a child. And I just wonder how you navigate this. Well, I wrote that when I was pregnant, because uh, I wrote the first book when I was pregnant. And so probably was a little, like, as you said, you know, a little kind of more bulletproof. I still feel that way about myself. And I will actually say that I do get a lot of like nasty, a lot more than, you know, the average person walking around the street, a lot of nasty content sent my way, but it's actually not, I don't know if it's lessened over the years or what's sort of, I've just banned everyone on Facebook that sent it to me, I guess. And I don't really use Twitter anymore. So that's kind of like, cut out a whole lot of it. The social media platform that I use most is Instagram, which is just generally speaking, very lovely in my experience anyway. So it's actually lessened a lot, which is great. I mean, obviously there are some, some times when, you know, one of the reasons why I stopped using Twitter was because I make bad choices there and I, I'm a hothead and I run my mouth off and I tweet something that is deeply regrettable, regrettable the next day. And that can sometimes increase in, you know, like obviously results in an increase in abuse, but yeah, it's like, it's white noise. But yes, having having my child did sort of bring a new perspective to things. And it wasn't so much that I don't post photos of him on the internet. That was certainly not of his face. So that protects him in, you know, in a lot of ways, because I don't think that, I mean, apart from a safety issue, I just don't think that he didn't ask to be, and he doesn't even really understand what my job is, except he thinks I just go on stage and speak into a microphone, which I guess I do. He didn't ask to be put forward to a, a huge audience of people and be subjected to the same abuse that I get. So I have to protect him from that. That's my, that's my most important job. But I worry that, you know, it just takes one person to decide that they're going to prove a point or that they're going to get back at you or like one aggrieved man who feels like feminism is the reason that the family court said he couldn't see his kid anymore. And that obviously that's my fault. You know, I get a lot of women who write to me and say that I'm the reason that they left their boyfriends and their husbands and that sometimes their boyfriends and their husbands know that. 
And sometimes their boyfriends and their husbands accuse me of being the reason, which I, I think is great and so funny. And I do love being responsible for, you know, or partly responsible for the breakup of an unhappy relationship. But again, like all it takes is one aggrieved man to decide that he's going to get back at me or he's going to prove a point or even hurt her for embracing me. And that worries me. So yeah, I, I guess I think about the implications of that. I mean, my friend Alice, whenever I tell her that, you know, this woman's broken up with her husband because of me or whatever, because we're both very much in favor of women leaving unhappy relationships, particularly when they're expected to do all the work. Alice always says like, doesn't it feel like the biggest burden to you, the biggest responsibility to what if you, what if you give them the wrong advice? What if you've told them to leave and that's the wrong thing for them to do or that backfires on them. And I, uh, to be honest, I don't see it that way, but she has that concern that, you know, if you meddle too much in people's personal lives, that you're sort of taking on this huge responsibility for how those choices work out. Which has deviated a bit from, sorry, what you asked, but I just have to explain to your listeners, I'm sorry, it was my birthday yesterday. So I drank an incredible amount of alcohol last night. And if I'm stumbling over my words, it's because I'm extremely hungover. (laughs) (laughs) I made some good (laughs) and bad choices last night. I suppose if anything, I've probably like pulled back a little bit because of him, because of my son. I've been thinking recently as well, he's about to turn four and eventually he'll go to school and eventually he'll have more of an, a cognizant understanding of my job. And I don't want him to be bullied at school because his mum's that, you know, bloody feminist. Hopefully the kids he goes to school with are a bit more evolved than that by then. But, you know, I don't think that we can guarantee that. So then what do I do? Do I compromise how vocal I am or compromise my politics to, you know, provide a smoother transition through school for him? Probably. Yeah, I wondered that. I wonder if you temper yourself a little bit more or you think a little bit more deeply before you speak. And Well, I mean, in, in part, I think that that's also getting older and hopefully a little bit wiser as well. But I don't have the same impulses as I did when I was younger to kind of like drop bombs everywhere. I don't have the same energy for it. I do want to be thoughtful. I want to be a thoughtful person and I want to think carefully before I say things, particularly as my platform's gotten bigger you know, that's, that's a huge responsibility. And I think you owe it to people to think carefully before you say things. I'm not always successful with that, obviously, but that I want to be that way. And maybe in part, that's also why I've been doing more Instagram lately is because it's just, it's nicer. And sometimes, you know, it's really funny because sometimes people on Facebook mainly, you know, I've had a couple of snide comments about my content. I think that they think it's becoming more frivolous or whatever. And maybe it is, you know, I post, it's also during the, the pandemic but you know I post cooking videos and I post makeup videos and and I do it sort of interspersed with feminist commentary and feminist lectures and sometimes I combine all all three of them together but you know at the same time I also think well I've been doing this for years am I not entitled to a little bit of a break Um, you know there are other people that can write daily posts about men killing their wives and who can write about sexual assault. I'm not the only person who can do that. That's clear. It's clear that I'm not the only person who can do that. And that stuff, more so than the abuse, I think is what takes its toll on you. It's just like being in people's pain and distress all the time. And so, yes, if I just want to kind of take a break now and post fucking frivolous, nice pictures of my face, I feel like I've kind of earned that a little bit. 
Absolutely. And you're not a one dimensional person. You, you have interests outside <laughs> of feminism, obviously. Yeah, it's a surprise and, to people and, um, sometimes. I think, right? And you criticized for it. And that, I think that must be hard as well. Because you're like, come on, I'm not just this one person who's a mouthpiece for this one viewpoint. Yeah. And I think people take real ownership over you. You know, they, there are people who've been following since the beginning who feel like I've changed. This is not everyone, obviously. It's probably a very small minority of people. They can't just say, as probably a lot of people have done, oh, well, it's just not for me anymore. Or I've grown beyond this or she's doing things I'm not really into at the moment. So I'm just going to unfollow and find someone else or get on with my life. Instead, there are some people who feel like personally let down or personally betrayed in some way. Remember as well that these platforms are all essentially free. I might post like four or five serious posts, you know, or articles linking to, you know, something terrible that's happened, traditional content you know, in terms of what my page always used to do. And then I'll post something funny or I'll post something that is just like a makeup selfie or something. And there's always one person at least who will say something like, well, I didn't follow your page for this. And you're like, well, you can't just focus on this one thing that you find meaningless and say, well, this is who you are now. So, you know, again, sort of going back to the, the kind of the question of abuse, People always assume that the worst thing that you have to deal with is someone calling you a fat cunt on Twitter. And actually, like, that's just very easy to ignore. I find the tediousness of some people's complaints almost worse, you know, that this sort of uh, kind of holier-than-now pomposity, you know, that they, they want to pretend that they've never posted a fucking link to a banana bread recipe. <laughs> is there a propensity for people to kind of go, well, you're not as good a feminist as I thought you were because you did this Absolutely. or I'm better at it than you. Absolutely. And again, that comes down to that. Um, now I, I clarify that that only ever really annoys me when I hear it from other white women, because of course women who experience more significant or more numerous significant marginalizations than me have every right to say that to me because I'm probably not a very good feminist in terms of, you know, what they need because of the system. And my own complicity in it, my own unlearning and so on and so forth. But when it's other women exactly like me, I, I always think, like, show me in what, what way I'm failing you, you know, or I'm failing other people. Because, it, again, I feel like, and I'm not saying that they're always wrong, but I do think that there is that, again, it comes down to that sort of practice of erecting a force field around yourself to kind of avoid criticism by pointing at the other women who look just exactly like you and who pr sort of pretty much are exactly like you and saying, well, you're bad. You've done this. You're bad. Last night when I posted um, a picture on my face or a cross posted a picture on my Facebook for my Instagram that just said it's my birthday, something basically, I did have to laugh and I eye rolled heavily at a white man who commented he said, let's hope some intersectional wisdom comes to you this year. All the best. And I replied, if not, I'm sure I can find a white guy to tell me what I'm doing wrong. I mean, that annoys the shit out of me. What are you doing, Mr. White Man, that you get to turn around and say to, to someone, to a feminist who, yes, is problematic in lots of ways, whether it's me or someone else, turn around and accuse them of not being intersectional enough. And you know, my, like what I said to myself afterwards, was like, I'm just going to remind myself that every time someone like that pompously wades into sort of like credential himself, I'm just going to remind myself that he almost certainly watches very violent pornography. <laughs> uh, do you read every comment? You know, I'm, I don't reply to every single one, but I do scan through them because, and not on every post, but if I've got the time to do it, 
because I wouldn't want to miss someone saying, you know, like raising a serious issue or uh, having any, you know, regardless of what people might think, I do actually take constructive feedback on board and I'm, you know, it's part of that sort of journey towards trying to do better. So yeah, and I, and I don't consider there to be a gap between me and the people who follow my page. Like it's, it's not like I think, well, I can post this and then fuck what they think about it, you know? Yeah. And does that kind of that process of going through and going, ah, oh, this is, this is worthy of a response or this is not. That's my hotheadness coming out because I should just ignore comments like that because there's no point in engaging. And I think it would be disingenuous for anyone to pretend that we don't all feel that little sting of indignation when someone comes in and we feel unfairly criticises us or even sometimes fairly criticises us. Of course, our immediate response is to kind of become defensive because the thing, one of the things that we fear most is being shamed, whether part, privately or publicly. And, you know, again, just going back to Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, I think that this is, this is also something that's really important to recognise is that it wouldn't need to take any, like, particular situation to have any one of us reaching for the toolkit that we've been given, whether or not we think we have it or not. All it takes is that, that prick of indignation, that prick of indignation, and you could be the person who is making a terrible, dangerous, violent choice because that's what you've been taught you can do in the same way you know if this helps to reframe it for other people listening in the same way that as women we fear disagreeing with a man because we're worried that the shame that results from that or the shame that he feels because god a woman has disagreed with me or a woman has like rejected me will result either in physical violence from him or him trying to exoriate us verbally we know that he has that capacity or has that potential for the capacity and I think that there are a lot of men who who respond in that way who wouldn't otherwise necessarily think that they would or who wouldn't otherwise go about their day-to-day lives speaking about women like that. But that's the toolkit they've been given. So we all need to understand the tools that we've been given to hurt other people. Absolutely. I want to kind of circle back to a reference you made to Twitter and hot-headedness. <laughs> so in, in our attempts to do good, we often make mistakes and we fail and we learn lessons, as you've covered. It's human. It happens. And, and when it happens, we can either fall on our swords and do better or double down and dig our heels in and refuse to acknowledge our mistake or change any behavior. So you tweeted not that long ago uh, and you wrote, honestly, the coronavirus is not killing men fast enough. And the backlash came very thick and fast. And among the noise that was out there were calls from, you know, prominent Australian media commentators for you to lose an arts grant that you'd applied for. You had a public denouncement of your tweet by the Lord Mayor of Melbourne. What were you thinking when you tweeted it? Okay, well, I'm going to defend the tweet. I've already addressed that. I don't think it's defensible. Unlike a lot of people, and I'm not saying this to sort of like big note myself, but I think, but because it's true, unlike a lot of people, I'm, I am willing to apologize publicly. And I feel like I'm willing to apologize genuinely as well and to reflect. So the thing is, this will sound defensive, but it's not intended to be defensive, but it just has to be put into context. It's not like I just went to Twitter on a Saturday night and I was like, here's, here's a funny tweet and wrote it, you know, I was speaking contextually within a, a longer thread about 
the fact that women's domestic workload had gone up significantly under corona and that they were not only doing more work around the house, but also they're the first to lose their jobs because someone has to take care of the children who can no longer go to childcare and certainly the men are not doing it. And this was specifically in relation to an article that I tweeted out immediately prior to and in the thread of that corona tweet in which the headlining couple that was featured included a man who had not been working because he'd taken time off of work before the pandemic started his wife who was the ceo of her own company and who stepped down from her job and dissolved her company because within three days of the child that they shared together being home from childcare, this man who was not working in paid employment came to her and said i can't do this and so she left her job. And look, people might argue, well, that's an, individ- an individual choice that she made. But it sits within the structural oppression that women are still experiencing globally to varying degrees that manifests itself economically, domestically, and in their interpersonal relationships. So I was furious about that. I have been furious about that. I've been furious about the fact that domestic violence and domestic abuse reports have gone up significantly under corona. I think that contextually it is understandable to be so furious at the impact specifically that the pandemic is having on women that you would then indefensibly and very unwisely tweet something that was that was very clearly meant to be hyperbolic, a hyperbolic expression of rage at the situation, as opposed to a genuine desire to see more men die. Now, I think that, you know, like a lot of the things that I've said in the past that people take objection to, I can explain what I meant by it. I didn't, you know, it's not the same as just saying, oh, well, here's a really hilarious joke about rape that I'm just going to drop on Twitter and then funnily enough, I'll have like, if I were a man, have a million people defend me because we're allowed to joke about dark things, right? Unless it's a feminist making a joke about the system in which we live. But the thing that really made me reflect on that tweet and why it was not just unwise to say, but also really cruel to say, and that's the thing that got me in the end, was I don't want to be cruel, was that someone said to me the next day, a black American woman actually said, I understand the hyperbole in this, but the thing is that this virus is actually killing a lot of black and brown men really fast. And I realised that, you know, again, not to defend the tweet at all, but, you know, we're all in lockdown, yes. But the actual impact of the virus as it's been felt in other countries is very abstract for us because we haven't had a lot of patients in the ICU. We haven't had a lot of people die from it, thankfully. So I think that, again, like you reach for the tools that you have and you make bad choices. And it was easy to reach for the tool of hyperbole to express a view about something. And I was able to do that because I feel like if if we were living in America and I was hearing ambulance sirens going past, you know, a hundred times a day, I don't believe I could have made that joke because the situation would have been clear and obvious to me. And so I reflected on all of that and I thought, you know, I've done something bad. I didn't intend to be bad, but I did something bad and I did something that was hurtful to people and I wanted to take ownership of it and apologise for it and, yes, provide some context for it because I do think that context is relevant. I think that the response from some people was one of genuine hurt and then from other people was one of opportunism because that's the way that the political system works now. Because the truth of the matter is that they were trying to take that grant away from me before I said the tweet. And that's on record. I mean, you know, one of the columnists who used it to come after me not only had written about it a week or so before about how I didn't deserve to have this grant and that it should be taken away from me prior to even writing this tweet, but has also 
you know, was also one of the journalists that fiercely came out in defense of Israel Folau and said that she didn't agree with what he'd said, but he shouldn't have to lose work over it because in Australia, we should have the right to say what we want. So there is this double standard and there's opportunism around it and, you know, there's cynicism around it. So I think that, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that something like that, it was one single tweet as if like it's the worst thing that anyone's ever said. And also funnily enough, as if I have this enormous amount of power that they need to strip me of, the only thing that they could have gone after at this point was the grant because I don't work for anyone anymore. I work for me. Yeah. And there's power in that. And I, I think that a lot of them really dislike that. Did you remove yourself from that grant process? I did, yes. And was that something that was encouraged by no, them? I, no, the City of Melbourne made it clear to me that I, wouldn't, I wasn't at risk of losing my grant, that they weren't going to buckle, and as they should have made it clear to me because the arts system and the arts grant system has to remain independent. And the whole point of the arts is to, is to provide opportunities to people who will challenge an audience. You know, and and art should be stimulating. Art should be controversial. One of the reasons I was so angry at myself for writing that tweet, beyond the fact that I, like I said, I don't want to cause harm to anyone. And it does make me feel really um, ashamed to know that there are people all over the world who've, of course, buried people because of this virus. And to see something like that would have been really deeply distressing to them. You know, whether or not I can say it's abstract for us here or not, that fact remains true but beyond that the response to it from the right wing and the the pressure that was put on the city of melbourne before and after i wrote the tweet is not about me it's not about my tweet they don't give a shit what i said and certainly they've defended people saying worse things and you know come out in defense of free speech whenever it's happened it's about the much bigger issue and the much bigger problem of the conservative right wing doing whatever it can to defund the arts and to defund left wing platforms and to, you know, defund the national broadcaster and to essentially create a complete echo chamber for Murdoch's press to exist in. Yeah. And look at what's happened in the six weeks or so since you tweeted that all of those things are happening. So that was another reason why I was really angry at myself was because I gave them I handed them the weapon to beat me with. And I also handed them a much bigger and more dangerous weapon to attack the grant system with. And so I did really, I did a really bad thing. Um, and, you know, I've, I wish I hadn't done it. And that's partly why I stopped using Twitter as well. Was, it was not because I was sort of like, well, this place is mean, but just I make very bad choices there. And my desire to try and do good and to try and be a good person in this world or, or to work towards goodness in this world means that I have to remove myself from situations in which I'm constantly tempted to do harm. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I'm on all three of those platforms and they all have very different personalities from, you know, just it's strange that a social media platform has a, has a personality. Clem, what is it about your work that you are most naturally drawn to and, and what is it that you find most challenging? Well, I really like the freedom of my work. It's particularly now that I do work for myself. I mean, I suppose in truth, I said before that, you know, people have these opinions about my work and they're on these free platforms. But the truth is that, you know, a lot of them, some of those people included, may be supporters of my Patreon. Um, So I do have an employer and that is the public 
or the the audience that supports my work. But I like the freedom of being able to to kind of like create that work and say, if you like it, then you can, here it is. And you can help support it or you can just, you know, consume it for free either way. Like here it is. You know, I have women writing to me sometimes and saying like, how do I navigate sexism in the workplace? Or they say things like, you're so brave. And I think actually it's really easy to be brave when you don't have a boss to answer to. I don't have a sexist workplace to go to every day where I have to worry about pissing off my you know, 55-year-old white male boss who votes liberal and doesn't like feminists. I don't have to hide any part of who I am because the job speaks for itself, you know. No one asks me to come and speak somewhere and expects that I'm going to come and, you know, not talk about the things that I talk about. They may they may want me to sanitise it a little, a little bit, in which case, you know, they're going to have a bit of a surprise. But that's incredibly freeing. So that's the best part of my job. I think I can work from home. I get to write. I, you know, people say like, well, what would you be doing if you weren't doing your job now? And they usually say that to people like who are working a desk job or not doing their dream, dream job or whatever. I mean, I'm pretty lucky. I'm kind of doing my dream job or a version of a dream job. I'd like my job to become a bit dreamier sometimes, but you know, it's a pretty great way to work. On the flip side of that, the thing that I find most daunting about it, I suppose, is it's incredibly insecure, you know, and it's quite anxiety inducing to feel like you constantly need to generate work and generate money to live. I'm fortunate to be able to do that, but who knows how long that's going to last for in anyone's world, you know, you know, you're a traveling salesman basically. And it, it is sort of very motivating, but also it requires a huge amount of energy and so sometimes you have like massive slumps where I sit up late at night worrying about what happens if I can't pay my bills what happens if I can't pay my rent what happens to me and my son like everyone has those worries so I think that you know if anyone thinks that everything's peachy keen it's not always the case and you're just one bad mistake away from losing everything yeah especially when you place yourself in the public eye as well you know you you kind of up the ante there I, I can absolutely resonate. I am a sing, single parent with two kids and, and run my own business and, and have done for a really long time. And it's it's hard. It never stops. You're always wondering, how am I going to get this next contract or this next job over the line or meet this deadline? And what what does it mean to have all the responsibility on you? And sometimes I do look at other people and go, ah, oh, someone else pays you. You just go in and out. And- oh my God. The way you're describing that right now is like, so, it feels like such a relief. You know, you just, someone does your tax for you. Someone just, you just go in, you do your job, you leave at the end of the day and your weekends belong to you. And then someone pays you at the end of it. it sounds amazing. Yeah. Perfect. I know. But also not something I think I ever want no, again. No, that's, there is that. No. <laughs> So, Clem, is there someone you can think of that's been a strong or greatest influence in your life around the idea of doing good or the practice of doing good? I learn from people all the time. You know, I've really benefited from reading the work of activists of colour, disabled activists, trans activists. I could name a few, but the, the truth is that the list is very long and it's not something that I, I don't have the list to, to hand because what I do and what I would advise all of your listeners to do if, if they're not doing it already is to 
particularly if they use a platform like Instagram, you know, where I find a lot of really great education happens, is to use the algorithm to their favour. So I've discovered, particularly in the last few weeks, I've discovered some really amazing anti-racist educators. Uh, like, you know, I wasn't following Rachel Cargill before, but I'm following her now. And obviously she's one of the, the biggest ones. But someone like Woke Kindergarten. Uh, Woke Kindergarten is run by a black, non-binary, queer person in America. And, you know, they break down privilege in really like accessible ways, but also really confronting ways. So it's not like here's, I'm going to spoon feed this to you. It's, you know, and so you follow, you kind of like follow these breadcrumbs, these trails and leads you to these amazing people out there. So that's another thing as well, that anyone who says, well, and I've had people say this to me too, you love to outline the problems, but you don't provide any solutions. And I always think, well, yeah, sometimes I don't have the solutions. Sometimes I can just name the problem and maybe your job is to come up with a solution. Or maybe we can come up with a solution together. But also when people say things like, well, you don't tell us what to do. You know, the first thing that I can tell anyone to do is to try. And you try by reading and by learning and by following or doing whatever, whatever it is. If reading's not for you, you listen. You know, you, you, you try by deciding today I'm going to start the process. And it's a hard one, you know. Um, it's really hard to to commit yourself to to wanting to do better, and you you're not always going to succeed. Fuck knows, I know that's true. So that's kind of like the broader, sort of more public, you know, people and processes that influence me. But you know, without wanting to sound really cliched and trite, the person who influences me the most in in the quest towards trying to be good is my son, because he's the one that who matters the most to me in the whole wide world. And he's the one who I need him to see me trying to be good so that he knows that that's what he needs to try to do too, you know, that there's no complacency in the household. And whether or not it's trying to be good by being someone who's kind and considerate of other people or trying to do good because he, you know, he's, he's almost four, but he picks up after himself in a way that an almost four-year-old can. You know, we talk about the house being a community or I say to him the house is a community and community of people has to take care of each other. So, you know, when I think about like not making irrational choices and not allowing my kind of like knee-jerk reaction to dictate how I respond to something, it's also thinking about him, you know, and particularly in regards to that corona tweet, I thought if he were older, this would have had a really terrible negative impact on him. And so I have to be to be more mindful of that. God, what you're saying is resonating a lot. I have had a, a quiet the morning with my son who's 10 and uh that that lesson is still happening. The house is a community and you have a responsibility to contribute and be part of that. And, you know, I think also when you are a single parent, some of that stuff, you know, it comes up more often because you're holding a big load. I will say one of the privileges that I have as, as a single mother amongst many, like I, I understand that I have a lot of privilege as a single mother in the way that I am, is that my son's father has him 50% of the time and he's a really great dad and he models the same principles at home and he's quite gentle in his own way as well. So my load is a lot less than someone who has their children most of the time. And of course, I've only got one as well. No, I'm, I benefit from that too. I have my children 50% of the time. There are two of them. Um, but that week, you know, that week when they're here is intense. And then the week that they're not, I'm like, it takes me a few days to breathe again. I get to enjoy a clean house. And time with yourself. Yes, and time with myself. 
So my next question is a bit of a philosophical question, and it's something I ask all my guests. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when I ask that, I'm saying something that future generations would look back on and say they're digging through our archives and go, what the hell were they thinking? I feel like the most obvious answer right now is it's not just what we're seeing being dismantled by the work of Black Lives Matter activists and protesters. It's the ways in which a pandemic and protests and everything that we've sort of been seeing really happen in the last month, let's say, has exposed how deeply flawed the system is to anyone who potentially didn't know that before or didn't know the extent to which it was flawed before, but also what a different system could look like. You know, I've been really inspired by seeing this campaigns to defund the police because my initial gut reaction when I heard that was, of course, that of someone who, you know, the police aren't always going to be great to me as a woman, but as a white person and as a white woman, the police are definitely a lot safer for me than they are for people of colour and for black people and Indigenous people in this country especially. So my gut reaction, speaking from a place of privilege, was, well, how do we defund the police? Like, what does a society with police look like? That doesn't sound effective to me or that doesn't sound rational to me. And then, of course, instead of just saying, well, that's my reaction, therefore it's the right one, I read more about it and I've been, you know, reading the work of activists and seeing the practice of it elsewhere. And, wow, it looks pretty amazing. You know, hearing Alexandra Casio-Cortez say that we already have examples of what it looks like to defund the police. It's called, you know, wealthy white suburbs because they put more money into community and more money into schooling and more money into health, etc. And that's not because they plan it better. It's because they have more privilege. This, I feel like, is what people might look back on and go, this is the point at which it'll, hopefully, they'll look back and say, this is the point at which it all changed. This is the point at which they moved away from really unjust systems, you know, unjust systems of racism and of misogyny and of classism, etc., and reimagined what our society could look like, that this is what we live in today. Absolutely. I think it's also, you know, there's so much has happened this year in the last, you know, six months alone and look at somewhere like the US and, and things are you know, in chaos, in flux and and falling apart. And I spoke to a previous guest who has um, been working on kind of open source systems to try to address the lack of medical equipment in the US to respond to COVID. And it's not that there's necessarily a lack of it. It's that they can't get it to where it wants to go because nobody's communicating. Systems are operating independently rather than interdependent. And um, I think, you know, it's a, that's just another example of what's not working and something so serious has to happen for us to kind of step back and go, right, now it's time to make these changes and unpack these systems. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Well, you know, I guess we've talked a lot about what I would love for the whole world to hear in this episode, and that is that the most important thing is to try, but to stop defining actions or people as being good or bad or goodness as a state that can be achieved because I think that that allows people to just 
uh, either check out, you know, they say that they've kind of already, they are already a good person. So therefore there's no, no more work needed to be done or to get sort of indignant and petulant and defensive and say, well, if you don't think I'm good enough, I'm just going to give up because that allows them to just do nothing, which is what they wanted to do all along. Goodness isn't a state that you can ever really arrive in. And that might feel unfair to you, but the point isn't to arrive at the goodness. The point is to practice the goodness. Is there someone that you think is doing a lot of good right now that comes to mind immediately? Someone that's leading well through crisis, someone that's helping others? So many people. Well, I interviewed Carly Findlay on my podcast last week and I think she does an amazing job of appearance activism and disability activism and kind of picks up where, you know, my late great friend Stella Young left off. Stella far out she was amazing and also you know all of the activists who are just tirelessly waking up every day you know particularly the activists of color and the indigenous activists who are waking up in a racist system and just pushing their sleeves up and going out every day and getting it done I think that that's immensely inspiring because whenever you're sort of like you charge yourself with trying to dismantle a system or a piece of a system the temptation is there to just you know, it's, it's tiring. And I, and I obviously have like a much smaller experience of that just in terms of feminism, but yeah, it is tiring. And some days you wish someone else would do it and you want to give up or you don't want to be the activist today. And, you know, the good news is that you can have some days where you don't do it because there will be other people, you know, there to sort of pick up the slack. But I think it's really hard to identify one person who's doing it well because that implies that the way that they're doing it is better than the way anyone else is doing it whereas i think that you know i take my i take my activists and my education in the same way that i enjoy my drinks which is different different drinks for different needs where's your favorite place on earth it's probably not so much a place like you know but i find a lot of comfort in being by by still bodies of water or alternatively raging bodies of water I'm not so much into the kind of like tepid waves. I guess to be really cheesy, I feel a lot of contentment when, you know, in the mornings when my son and I have a little cuddle and the day hasn't worn on enough yet for me to be irritated by anything. (laughs) Yeah. And he's very funny. And, you know, we went out to Hanging Rock yesterday to walk around for my birthday and he just was delighted by climbing over the rocks and so yeah look to be cheesy my favorite place is my favorite place to be is in the midst of my son's delight beautiful I love it what books are you reading what podcasts are you listening to at the moment I've just listened to this incredible podcast called seeing white and it was done by scene on radio s-c-e-n-e scene on radio which is which comes out of the Department of Radio Documentary Studies or Department of Documentary Studies at Duke University, I think, in America. And it was a 14-part series that delved really deeply into the history of whiteness and into the history of white supremacy and how whiteness was constructed all over the world, but mainly in America and um, the legacy of the Atlantic slave trade. And it was presented by a white documentary maker a radio documentary docu- documentarian whose sort of goal and premise was to unpack his own 
place in in whiteness and he speaks with you know numerous black scholars and academics and activists and it's fascinating it's really really interesting and i found it incredibly illuminating in terms of like adding it to your anti-racist sort of education and then so i listened to that and then i'm listening to the series that comes after it presented by the same man except this time in addition with a woman of color and it's just called men and it's the history of patriarchy and it's really interesting as well and what i love about it is that not only does it provide a really scholarly basis for discussing patriarchy but it also historically frames things in a way that i I feel like I have new information now when having discussions with people who refuse to see that these things exist. I have new information now that I can point to and say, well, actually, did you know? So I'm listening to that and I've just finished reading Kylie Reid's Such a Fun Age and I'm now reading The Mothers, which is by, I've got her other book up here, by Britt Bennett. And are you writing? I am. I'm writing my next book, which is a book of essays about love and, uh, but not like, boyfriends but you know about love in our lives and what love does to us and like how love motivates us and it's really about my kind of like experiences of love you know so there's an an essay about my mother there's an essay about my child there's more light-hearted ones as well so yeah that's been really really fun and very soothing to write in in a weird way it's also still painful to write because writing is painful and horrible And when's that out? It was meant to be out at the end of October, but the pandemic has delayed it by a year, which is great because I haven't finished writing it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Saved by the pandemic. Well, thank you, Claire. It's been a pleasure having you on. I've loved our chat. It's gone very on lots of different tangents, which is amazing. And um, yeah, I really thank you for your time and your openness and your honesty. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I'm sorry that it it took so long to kind of get it happening and that when it did, I was 15 minutes late. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.